Hey there. This is Story Story Late Night, the positively shameless black sheep of the Story Story Night family, where you hear bleep-worthy stories on an unblushing theme told live at the adults-only Visual Arts Collective. I'm artistic director Jody Eichelberger. During this summer season, we divide the phrase, liar, liar, pants on fire, into three parts. This month, we get lit in our season finale, On Fire. Our August 29th, 2017 show with featured storytellers Matthew Sorensen, Jen Adams, and Ryan Harrison. The host for the evening marked a return appearance by our co-founder, Jessica Holmes. It's time to burn up this stage. It's time for Late Night Stories. Matt, welcome. Hello, everybody. Uh, so yes, I'm a firefighter, and uh, I've been a firefighter since 2003. Uh, anybody here ever been a firefighter, wildland firefighter? Yeah. A lot of people, right? It's a big firefighter community here in uh, Boise, Idaho. Uh, my first year, I worked out of Cascade um, on a six-person smoke chase crew. Uh, after that, I went and worked out of uh, Loman, and uh, I spent a couple years on the Boise Hotshot crew. And then I worked on a Helitech crew for the remainder, and now I work in dispatch. As you can tell by my lovely dispatch physique. <laughs> That's right. Jody, by the way, sorry about that in your guest bedroom. <laughs> my wife and I are totally non-believers. So uh, firefighting, uh, to be honest, is kind of a shitty job. <clears throat> I mean, it's, it's hot as fuck. Uh, you're adding the element to fire. And then, uh, you know, you're wearing a 30-pound pack, carrying a chainsaw, and then someone will say, hey, you see that box filled with water? Hike it up the hill. Yeah, not awesome. Especially after you got a severe case of monkey butt. If you guys don't know what monkey butt is, that's when you haven't showered for a couple of weeks because you're on the fire line. And you're hiking a lot in the ash and the dirt and your butt starts to resemble the same color as a delicious red apple. <laughs> and the pay isn't awesome. <laughs> so why do I do it? Why did I do it? Now I'm a dispatch. I get to go home every night and I send those fuckers out in the line. But what I do at, uh, it's a great job, as shitty as it is. Um, you get to go out and uh, you get to experience places that most people don't ever go. Get helicoptered into the tops of mountains that you know, no one has ever shat at before. <laughs> it's a fantastic thing to do. And then you get to see it all burn, which is crazy. So the first year in fire, uh, it was the first time I'd ever seen extreme fire behavior. And it's kind of a funny thing to say, but that's what they call it. And I feel like you gotta say it like this. Extreme fire behavior. <laughs> and you know, when you first get into fire too, uh, you start to learn about all the models they use to predict if they're gonna have uh, potential for extreme fire behavior. And it doesn't really mean much to you, uh, all these numbers and different things. Uh, when you're first starting out. So this one particular day, you know, there was potential for 
extreme fire behavior. But, you know, I didn't know. I didn't even know what that meant, really. They also teach you uh, to develop a slideshow in your head. Uh, start to, to see the pictures of what extreme fire behavior looks like and uh, what the tactics, what tactics work against it um, and save that stuff so that you can build on your experience and become a better firefighter and have better situational uh, awareness. And this is definitely one of those uh, you know, slideshow moments. So we get to this fire and it's up by uh, Knox Ranch, uh, kind of by Warm Lake, anyone knows that area. And uh, it's not too big to start, you know, probably about the size of the stage right here. Uh, but one of, the, one of the indicators of extreme fire behavior is uh, e extreme uh, spotting, which is when an ember gets carried away in the, with the wind, lands into another fuel bed and starts a new fire. And so that was taking place on this and we couldn't catch it. And uh, at some point, like this is how crazy it was, at some point an engine crew showed up spraying water on it and a tree would like go up, you spray water on it, it would knock hot embers into the next tree and start that fire. So water wasn't even putting this out. And uh, I, get, I was told by a crew boss to go get this pump going with this uh, uh, girl that was on our crew. So I go and I try to do that. Failed, by the way. Didn't get, get the pump going. But at one point, I turn over my shoulder and I look and I just see this wall of flame. Just red, yellow, orange, and it's loud as fuck and wind is howling. And I'm, you know, my dumb ass, I'm just looking at it like, whoa, cool. <laughs> Had no idea about the imminent danger I was in. And then out of the smoke comes uh, one of my crew members, uh, Rory, who, you know, is more experienced than I. He grabbed me by the arm. He's like, hey, we're bugging out of here. And we, you know, went to the safe zone and just watched it boil over. And then uh, we worked my very first 36-hour uh, shift. Um, and really worked it, where you're digging line all night and till the end of the shift the next day. And which is a crazy experience, because you get delirious, and it's like doing drugs with no drugs. Um, so that was a crazy thing uh, to experience, and that happens over and over again throughout your career, and you learn uh, what the signs are, when you need to bug out of there. You learn about um, you know, how to handle that, how to, the tactics change. Uh, you don't just go dig line, you can do indirect line. Anyway, uh, so what do I like about this job? One is the crazy extreme fire behavior is something to experience. It's pretty amazing stuff. And it's so destructive. Um, another thing is just the people that you're with. Um, that guy, Rory, I worked with him for that one year. And he's a lifelong friend. Uh, that girl I was working uh, with uh, to get the pump going, not my lifelong friend. We actually didn't really like her all that much. <laughs> and... Uh, cat. If she's here, don't... don't just. All right, cool. So I kinda, we all kind of wish that she would go away. So uh, skip a few uh, months ahead. That fire is done. It's out, and our crew gets tasked with um, some project work around Knox Ranch. One was to build uh, this fence, an old-timey-looking fence, and the, to build it, we had to cut down um, our own materials, the, uh, all the trees that had burned up. Um, and the fence had, uh, on each end, had logs like this, like big logs, and you'd notch out the middle, make them fit together. And then to connect them, you'd have what we call pecker poles, which are just long, skinny trees. And they, these were all burn up trees. And this is also my first time with a near-death experience, because I had never run a chainsaw before, and they just gave me a chainsaw and said, go cut shit down. 
And so if you guys have never ran one before, um, they have something called a chain break, which saved my life. Because I tripped while I was walking around with it. And once again, my dumbass is holding on to the trigger. So as I fall, I pull on the trigger and the chain starts going around. And I accidentally, with my wrist, hit the chain break, which halts the chain. And as I fall, it literally touched my neck. I, I would have died in like a couple minutes, which was fucking frightening. So then skip a little bit ahead now. We're working on this fence. And how we were uh, making the fence and, and making the, the notches for them to stay together is our crew boss had instructed us to cut you know, a bunch of little cuts like this and then take a hammer and just knock out the middle material. Well, a guy on the crew uh, decided to expedite the process and make one cut like this, one like this, and then one board-in cut and do it all you know, in one, one go. Now, if you've ever run chainsaw, you know about kickback, which is when the very tip of the chainsaw touches um, you know, the material and all that inertia just jerks it back and, and out. And this guy, uh, when he was trying to bore in, he didn't hold on to it very good and he, he got kicked back and it swung wide. And of course, the person holding the log on the other end was that girl no one liked. <laughs> it clipped her knee, splayed it wide open and we ambulanced her out of there and I never saw her again. Which taught me another lesson to be careful what you ask the universe for. It is a good job, but also shitty. So uh, yeah, so why do I like it? You know, I like it because uh, you get to go crazy, go to crazy places, um, and you got you got to work with amazing people. That guy Rory, he totally saved my ass one night. Um, I went and got hammered, blackout drunk downtown, and passed out on a park bench. And my wife uh, was looking for me and calling calling me, and because uh, I didn't come home, obviously. And Rory just happened to walk by, I hadn't seen him for like five years, heard, heard my phone ringing, and just picked it up and got my wife into me. That's twice that guy saved me. <laughs> so you get to meet uh, and work with crazy, amazing people. And then finally, you get to experience extreme fire behavior. Thank you, everybody. Um, her name is Jen Adams. Jen, welcome. Thank you. Hi. Ever since I can remember, I have loved fire. The way it looks, the way it warms my face. It's dangerous, but it still draws you in close, like it has a secret to share. My father understood how much I loved fire. He loved it too. He was a magician, a world traveling performance magician, and a yogi, and a hippie, and the biggest kid I've ever met. And I loved him, and I adored him. He lived about an hour away from us on a yoga ashram, and he was traveling all over the world a lot of the time. But when he would come to the city with exotic gifts and stories, I dropped everything. And he'd always show us tricks. He'd make a little thimble appear and disappear, or pull a coin out of thin air from behind somebody's ear. But my favorite tricks were the ones that he did with fire. He could hold flames in the palm of his hand. He even kept some in his wallet. When I was 13, 
I started having serious mental health issues. I'd burn myself with a lighter. I'd light it and hold it upside down until the metal got red hot, and then I'd put it on my skin. The pain made me feel calm, and it helped me think clearly. I quit school. And in order for me to not have to go back, my parents said I had to get a job. My mom was convinced that I would get bored and go back to school, but I asked my dad if I could come and work for him and be his assistant. And he said yes. So I packed up all my stuff, and I moved from New York City to upstate New York to live with him. I was 15. I loved being in the magic show. I loved being with my dad. We started every show with fire magic. The curtain would open, and he'd throw fireballs from his fingertips, and then we'd build a pyramid out of flat metal pieces, and from inside, flames would erupt, and then he would reach inside the pyramid and pull out a giant silk tapestry with a picture of a dragon on it. Now, right before the show, we had to do all of our preparations, because with fire magic, you have to do it as close as possible before it happens, otherwise your fuel will evaporate. So right before the show would start, we'd douse everything down with lighter fluid, and then the opening music would start, and the curtains would open, and fire. We spent hours on the road together, going from one gig to the next. 11 hours once in a blizzard on the way to Erie, Pennsylvania. We spent hours talking, and hours being completely silent. It was definitely not a typical relationship. He was my dad, but he was also my friend and my confidant. We were partners in crime. And we had a lot of things in common, too, besides our love of fire, our interest in the deeper mysteries of the universe, and bipolar disorder. We'd get into really nasty fights. It's probably because that's the part I don't like to remember. <laughs> We got into really, really bad fights, and I don't know if it was the nerves, but it would always happen right up until the show would start. But as soon as the smell of lighter fluid would fill the wings on stage left, it all fell away, and we both got calm and peaceful. It's kind of like we were always in step with one another. We were. And then he got sick. He got really sick. I was 17. He had contracted hepatitis B, and what followed was a very long downhill battle. But we kept working the entire time, and slowly I became his assistant offstage as well as on stage. Medical treatments, cooking his meals, reading aloud to him when he couldn't even hold up a book. One night, he asked me to light a ceremonial fire in a little copper pyramid on the floor in his bedroom while he laid in bed. Agni Hotra, it's a fire ceremony for purification. And I didn't want to do it, because I was so exhausted. But I did. And he asked me to sing the words in Sanskrit that you sing for the fire ceremony. And I did, but I was angry the whole time. I was angry at my life, I was angry at him for being sick, and I was angry at myself for being angry at him for being sick. So I sang through gritted teeth. And the next day, 
he died. That was our last fire together. I was 19. It took two months for the shock to wear off, but when it did, I was broken because the only person in the world that understood my crazy was gone. People grieve differently. Some people drink, some people travel or keep a journal, and some people decide to take up fire eating. Now this was in the days before YouTube, so I had to look really hard and really try to find the information that I wanted. I found two books on circus sideshow performers and I met an actual fire eater who would not teach me how to fire eat, but he really loved talking about himself. <laughs> the first thing that I learned about fire eating is that when eating the fire, do not breathe in, your lungs will explode and you will die. This is enough to deter most people. The second thing I learned is that there's an old joke in the business that goes, hey, did you hear one about the one about the old fire eater? Yeah, me neither. <laughs> they tend not to live very long because they slowly poison themselves to death with toxic chemicals. I didn't care. I decided this is what I needed to do to cure myself. Trial by fire. So I made some little makeshift torches out of metal shish kebab skewers, cotton balls, and cotton thread, and I settled on Bacardi 151 for my, for my fuel. It burns a lot cooler than lighter fluid, so I thought I'll start with that and work my way up to the hard stuff. Now, I imagine that the feeling that I had while lowering a torch towards my face is probably what somebody feels right before they base jump doing something that you know could kill you. Like my body tried to flee itself. And hours of just getting a little closer and I, then this internal scream and panic and suddenly my arm would be out to the side. I had no idea how, but I kept going a little bit closer each time and after a few hours, I did it. I ate fire and I felt calm and I felt peaceful, and I thought, I have to do this all the time. <laughs> I need an audience, I put together a routine, and that's what I did, and I did it for a lot of years, until one night when it almost killed me. My show kept getting stalled, and I kept going back, because if you wait too long, your fuel will evaporate, so I kept soaking my torches down and waiting for the show to start, and I'd go back and so soak my torches again and go wait for the show to start, and I soaked my torches again, and I had drenched them till they were completely oversaturated, and then the show started, and I walked out on stage, and I lit my torches, and I put the first one in my mouth, and everything was fine, but now it was time for the transfer, where you take the lit torch and you hold a little bit of the fumes in your mouth on fire so that you can light the first one off of it. And when I put the torch in my mouth, I got a mouth full of lighter fluid. And I had a choice that I had to make. I could spit it out, but then the flames were gonna go wherever the lighter fluid went. Or I could gently swallow. I swallowed a mouthful of lighter fluid and I finished my show. I should have gone to the hospital. I should have called poison control. 
but I didn't. Because all of that pain was kind of a relief. It made me calm, it helped me think, and sometimes when I'm in pain, I have the most amazing moments of clarity. I don't know if I knew that I hadn't swallowed enough to really get me sick, or if I just got lucky, but I did know that I hadn't dealt with my grief. I covered it up. I stuffed it down. And I knew that while I was laying on the floor, curled up, while my guts were doing pirouettes. My fire eating career almost came to an end that night. I still do it, but only on very special occasions. It's no longer a way that I cover up my profound sense of loss. Now it's what it's supposed to be, a parlor trick. A parlor trick with the threat of instant death. <laughs> so a really cool parlor trick. <laughs> but it's still a parlor trick. Right after my dad passed away, I had packed up all of his stuff into plastic bins and plastic bags, and I put it all away. I didn't even have a picture of him up anywhere. People grieve differently. Now, instead of sticking a burning torch in my mouth, sometimes I go out to the garage, and I open one of the bins, and I put my face in it, and I just breathe it in. And it still smells just like backstage right before the show. And I fall apart all over again. Some pain isn't meant to go away. Ryan Harrison, please come up here. So super fun. Um, my story involves actually being on fire. I'm the thing that's on fire. So this is like PTSD therapy for me all over again for free. So thanks for that. And I'm also here for the free sex toys. I have to get stage props. So the story begins in Chicago the day after a trade show and I'm driving home with the trade show booth in a cargo trailer. The centerpiece of the trade booth was a classic car, a 1967 MG Midget, if you know what that is. Yeah, full of gas, that becomes relevant. And I'm, I'm towing it with a, uh, one of those van motorhomes, but not one of those like Mercedes $100,000 things you see around nowadays. It was kind that your aged aunt and uncle have in Indiana. 1989 Ford Econoline 250 uh, with the pink and purple stripes on the side and the dusty rose interior. <laughs> but I got a good start early that day and I'm making a way home and I, I, I had a goal of being at the uh, Des Moines uh, uh, fairgrounds to camp that first night out of Chicago. So I headed south, um, picked up I-80, turned west and I set my cruise control for 65 miles an hour, and I was the slowest thing on the road, and freight trucks and pickup trucks and SUVs and cars are just blowing by me like I'm standing still. It was disconcerting at first, but I just settled in my own pace, and you know, I had my goal, and I had my plan, and 
I was going to make it. Um, I, I was driving by myself, and so I played that game I'm sure we all play, which is, you know, looking at everybody else in their cars and deciding who's the serial killer, who's, who's transporting <laughs> contraband, drugs across state line and all that. So that kept me amused for hours. And, and then I crossed the Iowa state line. And if you can see that's Iowa here. It's a theme shirt. I pulled out of the dirty laundry hamper tonight because I forgot to wash it. So don't get too close to me. True story. Um, and, and I'd never been to Iowa be, before. And, and it's a very kind of lovely state with rolling farmland and, and very prosperous, at least that time. This is a few years back. Uh, beautiful farms, and, and suddenly all the cars on the road were, were brand new pickup trucks and shiny, and I was definitely the shittiest vehicle on the road. And, and I was just taking this all in, and, and then out of my uh, left-hand rearview mirror, I see a, a car that is the only shittier car on the road than mine, a pickup truck, a blue one, with peeling paint and Bondo and, and uh, uh, what do you call that, primer paint goes three, four miles an hour faster than me by me, and I have a chance to observe. It's a woman by herself in that pickup truck. And I thought, wow, you know, she stands out because she's got Iowa plates, but she's not prosperous. She's not doing too well. She's probably struggling, and I'm having, you know, empathy for her. And, and you know, she's not the serial killer, all that. But uh, she goes by me, and I felt like I knew her a little bit, but I, I later learn much more from her obituary. So on she goes, and on I go, and towards the end of the day, the sun is below the horizon, but the sky is still lit. Um, I'm 22 miles outside of Des Moines, and I start to see the orange construction signs that indicate that there's traffic coming, or a construction zone coming, and that our two westbound lanes are gonna collapse into one, after five miles and four miles and three miles and then two miles. And shortly after the two mile indicator, I go up and over a rise on one of these rolling hills and in front of me are taillights lit up. Everybody's braking and I'm thinking, shit, I'm driving 12,000 pounds and it's an Econoline 1989. So I gotta get on the brakes and I do and it's not a panic stop but it's a very concerned stop and I succeed in you know, controlling the vehicle and I stop behind a freight truck in the slow lane and I give myself six or eight feet between myself and the truck. And I look in the rear view mirror to make sure that everything behind me is in control as well. And lo and behold is the blue pickup truck with the missing grill, I didn't mention that, I noted that grill was missing when she passed me the first time and I see that grill come up to me behind me and I realize it's that same woman and she comes to a controlled stop, and I think, oh, well, she must have stopped and gotten gas. That's why she's behind me, but everything's good. And I look in front of me to try and figure out why are we stopped two miles short of this lane collapse when, boom! Oh, the most, you can't even imagine the sound and the impact. I was airborne. I was, I was thrown back in my driver's seat like uh, an astronaut at takeoff, and I was looking through my windshield at the sky. I was being driven into the air. And immediately I knew that a freight truck had come in at high speed, and in fact I was right. A freight truck 
carrying 80,000 pounds, had come in at 75 miles an hour without touching his brakes to the pickup truck behind me. And my thought at that moment was, I'm not going to survive this impact. It was immense. I, I can't describe to you what that surreal experience was like, but my, my focus at that moment was on keeping my eyes open because I felt like if I could survive the impact, it would be very important for me to know how this thing all wound up, where I wound up in space so that I could escape. So I was like that guy in Clockwork Orange, but without the mechanical aids, you know? Now, flashback to when I'm nine years old, and uh, I wanted to get something off a garage shelf above my dad's car. I took my shoes off and I climbed up on the hood of his car and he was this meticulous car guy. Uh, so his cars were always perfectly clean and polished and everything. And so I'm on the hood of his 65 Riviera, which I wish I still had. <laughs> <laughs> and I slipped whoosh, in my socks and those old fashioned stand-up antenna whoosh, right in my eye. I can still hear the sound today of the squish in my head of the metal antenna going into my eye. Think about that while I take a glass of water. So as I'm now clockwork orange in the middle of this accident, I'm seeing sky and, and the, the cab of my van is trapezoidal under the stress. It's, it's, it's not the right shape. It's, it's bending. And the windshield shatters, not breaks, but shatters fragments of glass, and they're bouncing off my eyeballs, which, which should really freak me out, because ever since that antenna accident, I've never been able to deal with anything with my eyes, you know, like no contacts, nothing like that. But now shards of glass are bouncing off my eyes, and I'm thinking, that's not that bad. It feels kind of like rain, summer rain. <laughs> kind of tickles. I know, I'm, it's strange, but that was true. And I, I didn't think I would, I, I would last the impact, but everything came to a stop, and all that deafening noise became silence. And I realized I had survived this impact, the initial impact. And then I looked down at my body thinking I would see the blood gushing out like the Julia Child's SNL skit <laughs> somewhere on my body. And I, so I looked down, and there's no blood, and I can move my arms, and I can move my legs, and I'm strapped in with my seatbelt, and I survived. So I know now I'm okay, I'm fundamentally okay, I survived the impact, but I gotta get out of here because this is a bomb. I've got eight gallons of propane. I just filled up on 40 gallons of gas. I've got this car in my cargo trailer that's got a tank full of gas. I know that the woman behind me in the blue pickup truck had stopped for gas. I was pretty sure that there was a freight truck somewhere involved and God knows what that thing was carrying. I just knew I didn't have a lot of time so immediately I checked the windows, power windows, they don't work, of course, no power. I checked the driver's door and it's twisted, the frame is twisted, I can't open the door. I look at the windshield and it was still intact, but you know how windshields do? They, they, they crack into a million pieces, but they don't break open, they're just sort of like a net of glass. I didn't know what to make of that piece of weird shit, so I looked at the <laughs> driver's door, or the passenger door, and I thought, check the passenger door. I, I opened the passenger door and, and it, it opened, but just one inch because my trailer had swung around completely flush to my van and it was blocking my door. I could only open my door an inch. 
and I realized I'm, I'm trapped in here. And so this is my passenger door, or my passenger seat, and this is my driver's seat. The freight truck that was in front of me penetrated right behind my driver's seat all the way through my van because I had been jackknifed into it. If I had gone straight into it, I would have been cut in half, so that saved my life. But I was trapped in the front of the van. I couldn't get to my tools in the back of the van to break any windows. I always wear flip-flops. I have no belt. I have nothing to break glass with in the cab area. And I go to the passenger window to, to sort of check the situation. And I see back towards the back of the van now the fireball that's 40 feet in the air and 40 feet wide. And it, I can not even see my whole trailer. I can't see the pickup truck at all behind me. I can't see the freight truck. It's all enveloped in the flames. And then I realize I don't have as much time as I thought. At that moment, I had three parallel thoughts, which I later identified as id, ego, and superego. My id, which is that like core animal part of your brain, was just saying over and over again, you're fucked, you're fucked, you're fucked, you're fucked, you're fucked, you're never going to make it. You're fucked, you're fucked, you're fucked. And then my ego, which is the practical part of my brain, was assessing the options. I can't get out the driver's door. I can't get out that way because the freight truck's the window. I don't the windshield. I don't know what to. The I got to go out the pass. You know, I'm thinking uh, tools. I don't have tools. I got to use my fist, figuring it out. My super ego was looking at all of this, and I swear to God, just philosophically saying. Is this it? You're just going to burn up inside this van? There's like no flashing of your life in front of you. There's nothing profound happening. It's really kind of mundane, and that's disappointing. So back to the urgent you know, plan of action part of my brain, I, I focused on that passenger door, and I knew I would have to break the window because I could only open the door an inch, and that was my escape route. And I have to say from experience, even though you're about to burn up, the idea of punching out a glass pane that's not really meant to break easily, not very attractive, and you just, ah, oh, man, I was thinking, shit, really? Is that what I'm gonna have to do? I'm gonna have to, f oh, I'm gonna break my hand in a million pieces and it may not work, and oh, shit. So you kind of wait till the last minute. So I burned up a couple seconds just, just struggling with that. And then I realized, okay, I, I got to just do this. And I, I, I bent my knees over the, the passenger seat, and I cocked my fist, and I was ready to go for it. And then there was movement. There was impact. And it knocked me into the driver's seat. And then I, I realized immediately that something had changed. I don't know what. Maybe another car came into the pileup. I don't know. But I immediately chained, uh, checked the driver's door, and it still wouldn't open. And I went back to the passenger door, and I opened that, and it would open eight inches at that time. And I knew that was my escape. So I slid out the, the passenger door, squeezed out. At that point, the fireball was halfway up my van, so maybe four feet behind me as I squeezed out that passenger door. Closed the door. Now the flames were working on my propane tank at that point. Right there is where my eight gallons of propane were. And I knew that any minute this thing was a bomb. 
close the door barefoot. I had, when I drive, I take my flip-flops off. I drive barefoot. So I'm barefoot now, and I run forward away from the flames towards the front of the van through broken glass, through shards of metal, through broken concrete in this construction zone. Over the last berm, I'm maybe 10 or 15 yards away from the van now when everything blows up and I can feel the heat on the back of my body. I can see everything in front of me light up from the explosion. I see one bystander 20 yards away and I figure immediately, he feels safe there, I'm going there. So I run to him. I don't say anything, I just come up right next to him and I turn around and look at my van. Channels of flame are coming out of every opening, all the windows, where windows used to be. So windshield is what, six feet, seven feet across? There's cylinders of flame seven feet across blowing out 20 feet, every window. It's just a sight you can't see. The bystander took a photo of this as I was running away, so I still have this photo of my van exploding as I'm running away from it. Anyway, I'm looking at this, and I realize I'm safe. You know, it turns out I'd broken some bones, I was whiplashed to fuck, but I didn't know that at the time. I felt, you know, I'm pretty good. And I'm looking at the van, and I'm realizing everything that's going up. I've been on the road for six weeks, so my entire life was in that van my office, my music, my backup hard drives, everything, you know. So I'm saying out loud the list of things I'm realizing I'm losing. I said, my phone, my wallet, my laptop, my hard drive. And then I looked down at my feet, and they're bare feet and bloody. And I said, and I don't even have any shoes. (laughs) Kind of a primal thing. And they... The man next to me, the bystander, about a seven-year-old guy, very natally dressed, you know, perfect hair, uh, says to me, first thing he said was, oh, I, I have some spare shoes in the trunk of my car. I can, I can lend you. I, or you can have them. And then he, he went on to say, they're old, worn-out athletic shoes, but you're welcome to have them. And then he walked away to his car to get them. And I was like, ooh, I don't have any socks on. <laughs> Old athletic shoes, that sounds nasty. You think about weird things. And he came back with these shoes, and they were beautiful shoes. They were leather-lined, casual shoes, you know. Allen Edmonds, if you know that brand, right? Right. That was his old, worn-out athletic shoes. They were fine, but they're two sizes too big. So there I was, eight cents in my pocket, stranger's shoes, two sizes too big. Uh, I got no underwear on, because it was a day past laundry day. And I'm... 22 miles from Des Moines, which is a long way from home, and it took me 24 hours to get home, which is a very surreal kind of experience, as as odd as the whole explosion. Well, now, you go through an experience like that, and you have to reflect, and I'm sure I'll reflect my entire life on what all that meant, but um, certain things are are very apparent to me and have been since that moment. One is that when your time comes, your time comes, okay? The woman behind me in the blue pickup truck, and by the way, the the first responders for three or four hours did not believe me when I told them that there was another vehicle behind me. They thought it was just the freight truck and myself. They couldn't find her in the wreckage, and then they did, and, and she wound up 
and her pickup truck wound up the size of a dorm room refrigerator, okay? She didn't do anything wrong. Her name was Teresa Fenton. She was 44 years old. She drove according to the law, and, and she abided by traffic rules, and she didn't do a damn thing wrong, and she didn't stand a chance, okay? She was a mother of 11, five of her own, and six that came in from a, a husband that uh, was a second marriage. She was raising 11 kids. She was the uh, uh, checkout clerk at a Walmart locally. So when your time comes, it comes, and when it comes, there's no chance. You got no chance. You're over, right? And in my case, it wasn't my time, and I should have died in the impact, and I should have died in the fire, and I didn't. So until your time comes, there's nothing that can kill you. I firmly believe that. I also believe that in life, we find ourselves entrapped, not very often literally like I was, but oftentimes metaphorically. I've been entrapped metaphorically in my life plenty. And in those circumstances, things change. You know, you have to be aware of circumstances changing and you hope for circumstances changing and you've got to pay attention to it and you've got to be ready to check the doors. That's the best case scenario. But if circumstances don't change before that entrapment brings you down, you have to be ready to break the fucking glass. Thanks for listening. Story Story Late Night is brought to you by our story party, Amy Moran, Karis Kimball, Hannah Mae Schaefer, Karen Moore, Bob Haycock, and me, Jody Eichelberger. Thank you to our season sponsor, Over 19 Adult Shop, and the on-fire show sponsor, Acme Bake Shop. The Story Story Late Night theme song is by Ned Evett, with podcast production by Stephen Baldessari, featuring live music from Mahabia. Support this storied program, find upcoming shows, and stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on SoundCloud, Facebook, and Twitter at Story Story Night.